Hello, this is Terrence McNally. In this week, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, let me express my gratitude for all my blessings, especially family and friends, as well as allies near and far who every day imagine, pursue, and create a world that just might work. In keeping with the holiday and combining good news and food, here's my 2019 conversation with Paula Daniels, co-founder and chair of the board of the Center for Good Food Purchasing. The center uses the power of procurement to create a food system that prioritizes the health and well-being of people, animals, and the environment. And as its goals and standards are adopted by a growing national network of food purchasers, such as school districts, the program exerts growing leverage on the larger food system in America. You can learn more at goodfoodpurchasing.org. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to another episode of Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm speaking today with Paula Daniels, co-founder, chief of What's Next, and chair of the board of the Center for Good Food Purchasing. And you can learn more at goodfoodpurchasingoneword.org. After a three-year hiatus since Trump's Electoral College victory, I've been doing a new interview every other week. Paul Hawken on climate change, Naomi Klein on No Is Not Enough, Arlie Hostchild on her book Strangers in Their Own Land and the Stories That Divide Us, Robert Wright on Why He's a Buddhist. The show airs as specials on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA and streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podomatic, most podcast sites, and at my site, terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. A quick plug for participation. Um, I know it's the holidays, but there's still a lot going on. Um, the organization that I think does the best job of getting us uh, active these days is indivisible.us. Uh, I think it's also indivisible.com, indivisible.org. You can find it. And they have about 5,000 local chapters, and every week you get this is what you can do this week. A couple of organizations that were primarily digital now work pretty closely digital with grassroots on a national basis. Move on, one word, moveon.org and in California, couragecampaign.org. A couple that are very specific to interacting with your representatives, Five Calls, that's the number five in the word calls, fivecalls.org, and townhallproject, one word, .com, townhallproject.com. Five Calls tells you the calls that are worth making uh, on a timely basis, and Town Hall Project tells you when your representatives are in the neighborhood and you can actually interact with them in person. And finally, uh, since climate change is so crucial, the organization I think does uh, the biggest organizing work on that is 350, the number 350.org. So there you go. Now to today's guest and some good news. When people ask what I mean when I talk about a world that just might work, I say that first of all, it's rooted in seeing reality as alive, dynamic, and interconnected rather than dead, static, and separate. And the story and the program that we're gonna talk about today grows out of, I think, looking at the world the way it actually shows up. Looking at the relationships that matter, not just in nature, but also in business, and politics, and government, and then successfully pulling them together for the common good in all sorts of sectors, and actually with ripple effects that should uh, last for years into the future. The Center for Good Food Purchasing transforms the way public institutions source food. It uses the power of procurement to create a food system that prioritizes the health and well-being of people, 
animals and the environment, and it does so through the adoption of the Good Food Purchasing Program by a growing national network of major institutions like school districts. Paula Daniels is co-founder and chair of the Center for Good Food Purchasing, uh, a 2015 national spin-off from the Los Angeles Food Policy Council, which she had founded in 2011. A private sector attorney who transitioned to public policy, Paula served in several senior level positions in the public sector, including senior advisor to L.A. Mira Villaraigosa, Commissioner of Los Angeles Department of Public Works, Commissioner California Water Commission, and Commissioner California Coastal Commission. Among many honors, she was selected the Shoka Fellow in 2018, and those are granted for excellence in social entrepreneurship. Welcome, Paula Daniels, to Freeform, a world that just might work. And let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Wednesday, December 18th. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, very well. I, I like listeners to get a feel for the people, not just the ideas and the work that we talk about. And I've read that you say that your mother inspired you to be a change maker, that her lifelong motto was borrowed from an Amy Gersler poem, self-reinvention is everything. And if I look, as I've said, you followed a very indirect path, private sector, government, nonprofit, local, state, national. Now, if you know the classic story form, which is every movie screenplay and the hero's journey and all that, it's your life's going along, some inciting incident happens that sends you off in pursuit of a new goal, pursue that goal, you overcome some obstacles, you either achieve that goal or you don't, you learn a lesson. Um, our brains are hardwired to kind of see things that way. And it seems to me I'd love to ask you to sort of give us those stories of a number of these twists and turns in your life. So first, how did you move from Hawaii to L.A.? Mm. Well, I came here to go to college, but I think part of what um, spurred my interest in, in moving from Hawaii to California to go to college um, was just having lived around the world. Uh, my father actually was raised on a sugar plantation in Maui. This is a bit of a legacy of Hawaii's history with agriculture. Um, Hawaii had been a self-sufficient, um, independent kingdom. Had to be. Uh, up until <laughs> it was very self-sufficient. It was a, uh, an archipelago of thousands of islands. Actually, we know about the seven main islands, but there are thousands of ho islands that uh, form the Hawaii island, the Hawaii islands chain. And there is and that was, wonderful fact that, if I'm not mistaken, Hawaii is the furthest yes, from other land yes. of any bit of land uh, yeah. on Earth. It's the most remote population area in the world. Yeah. It's 2,500 miles is the closest point from anywhere else. So okay. it's the most remote population in the world. And it had a really thriving uh, kingdom that, if you look at it from an environmental standpoint, which was a big, been a big motivation for me, was very self-sufficient um, for a long period of time. And then Western contact came, globalization came, and then came um, the dominance of Hawaii by – it was American agribusiness that ended up overthrowing the Hawaiian government. And then the people of Hawaii were then subsumed to this form of, of self-installed government that um, wanted Hawaii for sugar. It was post-Civil War uh, wanting Hawaii for sugar. I'm giving you a lot of history here, but it's my own history is bound up in that uh, because after the overthrow of the Hawaiian government, my family, which had been a, actually a political family, so my great-great-grandfather, William Henry Daniels, was a lawyer, I found out recently. I didn't know that. I became a lawyer, but I didn't know that he was a lawyer. But 
I did know that he was a judge. Sometimes they're appointed. They don't necessarily practice mm. law, but he was a judge on Maui. But he was also a congressman to the kingdom of Hawaii. Mm. And when the overthrow happened um, after that, because he was Hawaiian and English, um, he was on the other side of that political equation. So his son and my grandfather after that had to work on the plantations. My dad was mm. raised on a sugar plantation and had more ambitions than that um, and wanted to see the world. And so he joined the army. That was a way out of rural America. I mean, that's the, this story could be told in Iowa. Or Louisiana. Yeah. 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 yeah the South. Um, but he joined the army. And so his first assignment as a young officer, became an officer right away, was in Berlin. So I actually lived in Berlin as a child. My first memories of the world are Berlin. Mm. My first Christmases were Tannenbaums <laughs> with wooden <laughs> shoes. This is a Hawaiian family uh, living in Berlin. But it was at the time of um, the Cold War, and my father was the captain in charge of Checkpoint Charlie. Wow. Set it up. So I remember Checkpoint Charlie going up. So you could call that a pivotal moment in my life. We're going back pretty far. I was, yeah. I was a young kid. But what I saw were um, walls going up to separate people, and I saw people willing to die for freedom, political freedom. And I didn't really completely understand what it was, but I remember, you know, going to visit those places where people had jumped to their death rather than be caught on the other side of that line and tugging on my mom's sleeve and asking her to explain it to me. Those were, um, that stayed in my mind. Then we moved to Georgia and we were in Georgia when it was still the segregated South. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't aware of race until then. But I became aware of race because the segregation lines, though these lines for it was white and colored. I was how it was I grew up in described. Florida, mm. and the the two high schools that I attended, I attended one in Jacksonville, mm-hmm. freshman and sophomore, and one in Cocoa, Florida, junior senior. Both were integrated mm-hmm. while I was attending them. Wow! So I also know the era of separate schools, yeah. separate drinking fountains, yeah. separate restrooms. Yeah. Though I remember standing in the line at the Dairy Queen and wanting to go in the line that was moving faster. And and I was told we couldn't go in that line because that was the line for, for colored people. And I said, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? <laughs> to me, it seemed like a special status because it's a, oh, a faster they moving got faster line. line. And I said, but, you know, how dark do you have to be? So it, I want to I be in that line. But I, it's, I started realizing what it meant. It was like the shells came off of my eyes. Yeah. I started seeing that that line, that bathroom wasn't as well maintained. Um, it just, it the division started becoming apparent, you know, and where we fit into all that was a, a really burning question for me. And then right around that time too, I also wanted to be a doctor. And I thought, but wait a minute, are there women doctors? Wow. I don't know if it's possible for women to be a doctor. So, huh. And I remember just thinking, well, maybe I can't be a doctor. And then but I went to the library, I started checking out books on medicine, and I learned that there was a woman doctor <laughs> a while ago, Elizabeth Blackwell, first MD. And I th- was ashamed of myself for thinking that I couldn't do something. And that was a pretty pivotal moment in my life. I thought, I will never again put a limit on myself for thinking I couldn't do something because it hadn't been done yet. Mm. Right? That sort of raised that question in my mind about... Why do we put these limits on ourselves? Yeah, and, and this will come up in the conversation again because one of the things that I want people to draw from this conversation is how, let's say, good, good food purchasing mm-hmm. 
-hmm. has happened, how, how an idea becomes a reality and then grows and goes through whatever it has to go through. But part of it is that belief that just because it doesn't exist, yeah. just because it's big or whatever, or just because it means business and government have to get along, yeah. doesn't mean it's impossible. Yeah, that's right. And it was um, – I really appreciate your bringing up my mom who passed away this year. Um, but she was – at that time, she was a housewife. But she did keep reinventing herself. And as I later became a lawyer and a partner in a law firm, she had moved from in that same time in Georgia when I was telling you I was interested in being a doctor. She was a housewife. She went back to school when I was 13. Um, she uh, ended up you know, getting her master's degree when I was in high school. Um, and then I was a lawyer in a partner firm. She runs for office and she held elected office and she became the first woman vice speaker of Hawaii. She made a lot of big difference wow. in Hawaii. So she kept reinventing herself, and and it just sort of— It was the model. It was the air we breathed. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I will share this with you, Paula. My mother passed away a year ago, uh -huh. and uh, when I spoke at her memorial service— I talked about how she had reinvented herself. Mm. And it wasn't – she never got the master. She never actually graduated college. But from, you know, single mom of six kids to professional woman to, you know, those different mm -hmm. stages that, yeah. that, that, that women went through in those because the reality around them was changing at the same time as they were yeah. changing. You're exactly right. She was a product of her time. I mean, she was a housewife because the 50s and 60s, that was sort of – the way things were, but I always saw her pushing against that and breaking f free of it, which is why that poem, that you know, advice from a caterpillar, was it resonated with her so much. So for me, you know, it was a co-creation. We were doing it side by side. She's my mom, but it felt like a kind of a, a uh, we were walking this journey together of reinventing herself. And she always she didn't have a very authoritative grip on me as a mom. It was more like a support and mm -hmm. encourage her to she's a big fan of joseph campbell so she always said follow your bliss. oh so, so this <laughs> this method we're using in this interview yeah. she'd, she'd approve so um okay so let's i'm thinking the next turn in what i can see is when you decide to go to law school yeah well i was actually a journalism major at usc and i was very interested in going into documentary film but found it um uh, unclear what the path would be at the time, and I'd taken a, a law class as an undergrad, and I found it fascinating, mm. I, especially the First Amendment. So I went to law school um, and and found it a really interesting area, and I'm really glad that I did do it, but I it was a, not a, a perfect fit for me uh -huh. <laughs> being in law school. I tended to want to explore a little bit more. Law is very rule-bound, but mm. I was glad to learn all that, and I became a trial attorney which to me was a very similar skill sets to being a journalist. When you're a trial attorney, you get a big heap of facts that are the, the case. You figure out what the narrative thread is. In, in the law sense, you figure out what the issues are. And then you present it all to a public. And in our case, it was a jury and a judge. And, um, and we just basically facilitate a decision as lawyers. And, and there's been research done that says that uh, what juries do is choose between the two stories. Yeah. That that narrative that you mentioned is, yeah. is crucial. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot like what our voters are doing right now. Exactly. Choosing between two stories. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, so you go to law school. You then go into private practice. You're a trial lawyer. Yeah. Um, you're a partner. This is all going very well. Um, why do you end up leaving that? Well, it kind of wasn't enough. Um, I was doing well, and I enjoyed it. I had my own law firm, um, and and I was glad for that success. But I had always cared a lot about a number of the issues uh, going on in the world. When I w- wanted to be a documentary filmmaker, it was because I wanted to highlight stories of things that were happening that weren't necessarily getting the light of day. You know, I think in part I'm motivated by Hawaii's story, which was not that well known. It's known to us in Hawaii, but I, having traveled the world and and having a sense of the perception of Hawaii that I knew wasn't necessarily consistent with how we experience it, to me there's always these narratives to unearth, these ideas to bring forward, these philosophies and principles that are important that need to be celebrated. There's heritage wisdom. There's There's wisdom that I got from my grandfather that I thought was so valuable that I wanted to share all of those things. Among the wisdom he had was um, the concept that he was telling me, and at the time, it wasn't as widely accepted, but it was Malama Aina, the stewardship of the earth. And it was just an important, you know, as I said about my mom and reinvention, it being the air we breathe. For him, it was the air we breathe in Hawaii. This is the way we always were. This is the way we need to remember how to be. And so I was very interested in participating somehow in environmental protection, particularly the ocean. And I learned about a group called Heal the Bay. That was a huge pivot point because I really just wanted to participate in my spare time, mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as such as it was, partner in a law firm. Yeah. Um, but I had some time, hours here and there. And so I volunteered with Heal the Bay. But they were at a point where they needed help. And Dorothy Green, who was uh, became a wonderful mentor, pulled me in and kept asking me to do more things. Uh. And I kept saying yes, because <laughs> it was fascinating. So I kept doing more and more and more volunteer work with Heal the Bay and eventually became on their board. And then that actually led to me being appointed to the Coastal Commission. That was a huge pivot point for me because the privilege of being able to be a decision maker in public policy and to make decisions that influenced many. Um, it was different than the decision in a case mm. where, you know, one party or another has the satisfaction of reparations um, or judgment or however it works. Um, this was broader and it affected the environment. And I really appreciated that and spent, I spent hours on the Coastal Commission work, hours and hours. And yet it felt like, um, time that was so valuable to me. It felt more important to me in you know, some ways than let my... Let me just share. I've inter- interviewed other folks and in, in a fellow who thought he was going to be a doctor and got his MD and then decided he'd go into research for sort of that same reason. A doctor can help one person at a time. If you make a breakthrough, you right. can help everybody. Right. And, and, and so public... that, that, that feeling that, wait, there's a bigger field. Yeah, public policy affects thousands, millions and of nature. people at the time, and and nature, who nature is our partner. Um, so our partners. Um, yeah. and my mom had by that point in time had already been getting involved in politics as well, and we were sharing this again, sharing the path, sharing this path. Yeah, at that point she wasn't elected just yet, but oh yeah, she was elected by then. Sorry, um, and she'd always said that exactly that. So. 
I decided that I needed to shift things. Instead of having the public policy be this appointed position I do on the side, I wanted it to become the thing I do. So I started opening myself up to thoughts and ideas. I talked to my law partner about um, dwindling down my business, turning it over to him more. And then um, with that intention came the shift that led to me being appointed to um, being in Mayor Villaraigosa's cabinet uh, as a senior person, a senior person on his staff in 2005. And and what was it you did uh, for the mayor in the city? Yeah. Well, I came in with him. Uh, so I, I actually was his first appointment. Uh, <laughs> that was a matter of circumstance. He needed to fill that position. He did it. He was inaugurated, went back, signed some appointments. I was one of them. But I was a public works commissioner. Uh-huh. And I, I wanted that position because I at that point in time, I'd been very involved in green infrastructure and stormwater capture um, as a commissioner, but also as Heald Bay board member. And I wanted to be able to really implement that work in the city. At that point in time, they were hardscaping all their stormwater management and wanted to um, turn things around so that it could we could integrate nature into the process and let nature do what it does, which is to clean up... Uh, pollution. It actually puts what can be pollution in a certain context to use. Like waste becomes resource. And in that's nature. In nature. Yeah. And so so both Gila Bay and I know tree people are yeah. working on ways of mm-hmm. dealing with our water and mm-hmm. our land differently. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it started with Dorothy Green. Dorothy Green was promoting that idea. I started getting involved in it. I I advocated that when I was on the Coastal Commission in 1999 and then really started implementing that in 2005. Uh, Well, actually, I got the Million Trees Initiative. I got an urban forestry initiative. And then I started working in earnest on the Green Streets program in the city of LA in 2007. So from 2007 to 2011, we adopted a new ordinance that required all new redevelopment to capture, infiltrate, or treat all the runoff from a three-quarter inch storm, which would then um, clean up the pollution and recharge the groundwater and also allow for more um, green infrastructure, um, more natural space for that, which would if it, you know, would also serve as carbon sequestration so right. and soil health. All, all the important. different loops, all the different feedback. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So we adopted the ordinance. We had the, a, a management committee working on this, the Green Streets Committee. We changed the um, engineering guidelines so that those types of designs would be the rule, not the exception. They could be pre-approved. Um, we created a, a workforce development program. So we did a lot along those lines. And then I had an opportunity to work on food policy. <laughs> now, how did it go from public works to food policy? Yeah. Well, this was something that happened on the side. So this is one of those Again, kind of aha side. moments. Starts but, on the side. Yeah. Well, I had... And then takes over. <laughs> Exactly. So I had been um, a governor's appointment to the Bay Delta Authority, which oversaw the state water project. And I was still on that during the time I was on the coastal, the sorry, the Public Works Commission. And that gave me a very close um, working relationship with agricultural interests in the Central Valley and how they interact with government. You know, I'd learned about it in the abstract before that, but then actually worked with the folks who um, we're trying to make things work for them in agriculture, but also, you know, had maybe some differences of opinion on water use. In in that time, like around 2004, so I started thinking that it would be really, you know, agriculture responds to market dynamics. It's a private 
system, basically. It's not as regulated as water or air or energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that market dynamics were important. And I kept thinking that it would be really important to aggregate the market demand of our urban areas to send market signals to agriculture about the values that I knew we cared about in the urban areas, which were environmental protection, supporting local economies, fair labor, all of those things. Um, and so it was, I was talking to my friends in, in the environmental community about it, like, shouldn't we do something like this? Everybody thought it was a great idea, but everybody was pretty busy right, with their mm-hmm. own work. But it was an idea I kept that kept percolating in my mind. And then in uh, 2009, so 10 years ago, a friend of mine who's a deputy mayor um, in the mayor's office, uh, Larry Frank, had um, wanted to celebrate the 30th anniversary of farmers markets. Uh-huh. So that was – they had started in 1989. And the idea of farmers markets was to support small farmers, give them markets for their produce, but then also, you know, these combined goals – of serving low-income communities that didn't have access to supermarkets or healthy food. So it's to take that produce, to close the circle of needs there and and solve a problem. So And they'd grown, obviously, in that period of time. So Larry's a very deep public policy thinker and a really phenomenal organizer and community-based, rooted in community and uh, working on, on multi-sector collaboratives. So he brought a bunch of people around the table to talk about, well, what do we, what should we do to celebrate the 30th anniversary of farmers markets? With the implication being that it wouldn't just be say, yay, 30 years, but what does this mean? What does this moment mean? And how do we amplify this work? Well, again, it's you got impact. How do you how do you expand it? How do you how do What's you next? how do you get a bigger reach? Yeah, maybe integrate more sectors. All of those sorts exactly. of things. What's next? So he brought me into that meeting, and that's where I started talking about, oh, <laughs> this idea I've had that, you know, I said, well, we should, you know, have, you know, we should have all these policy announcements to make. So we started working on it. Basically, I started running with it. Um, it so I, that was my opportunity to start organizing folks around it, and I did. You know, so I started researching to present to the mayor an idea of how what he could say um, at the farmers markets, and it was to at the, the farmers market celebration, and worked with others to develop the concept of creating a, a task force directed to uh, look at the policy, make some recommendations on a policy framework for the city of Los Angeles that would address our responsibility to our urban, our rural um, agricultural community environmental sustainability, fair labor practices, all these issues, like what's to address what role the city of L.A. could have in those issues and in a regional context, understanding where we sat as a leader in a region. And uh, so we did uh, in September. And what's, what's interesting is that, as you pointed out, food is an essential resource for people, yeah. just as water, air, and power are. They are regulated Food is not so much. There's, you know, there's Food and Drug Administration. There's mm-hmm. Ag Department, so on, but just not as much. And what you're solving here or exploring the solution to is if it's not going to be by regulation telling people exactly what to do, how do we use the power of a city mm-hmm. to influence things, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the 
that's the interesting flip here, mm-hmm. is that it's the city as consumer, isn't it? Exactly right. Yeah, and that the city as a consumer has an awful lot of power, and we wanted we wanted, as you said, to harness that power. That was one of the ideas, but the main frame for what we would be looking for would be. How do we influence – what can the city do to influence these issues with healthy food access, with, um, you know, the economic um, plight of small farmers, with the dwindling amount of land and agriculture in the surrounding regions, all of that. Um, so we did – he did announce this. He did agree, agree to it. He thought – we presented the idea to him. He thought it was a good idea. And basically let us run with it. Um, he was really, you know, years later, he said, you know, I, I hadn't campaigned on food policy, but I'm really glad we did this. It was one of the best things we did. And he, he saw immediately how important it was and how uh, cross-cutting and valuable uh, working on food systems work would be from all the, all the reasons we, we mentioned. And so what you did was you created a policy. What does that mean? Yeah. So, well, we created a task force first, and then um, it was a small task force of 20 because we were going to – we were tasked with producing a report, and we wanted to produce it in the, in July of 2010, and we did. You know, so we we met. Um, I hired a coordinator. Her name is Alexa Delwich, who's my co-founder now, um, and she helped organize us, the 20 of us, um, and it was a, a cross-sector group deliberately chosen for representation across the food system spectrum, farmers, uh, business people who worked in food businesses, um, advocates um, for in hunger issues, public health professionals. And because LA is not a combined city and county, we had to work across mm-hmm. jurisdictional boundaries. So we had county representatives, et cetera. And, you know, we we did what people do in a task force. You meet <laughs> and talk and share your ideas, but people are experts. And then we also had a number of listening sessions, and we had three urban-rural roundtables because the urban-rural connection was a really important one. And bringing farmers and the farming community, the agricultural community into this in a robust way was very important. So included in our task force was the, the Secretary of Food and Agriculture, who at the time was A.G. Kawamura. So... Uh, we had an, a, a lot of uh, conversation around what everyone thought could happen and was important to happen, synthesized it, and to Alexa's credit, she was just brilliant at pulling, um, you know, making sense out of a lot of this and pulling it into a good frame. Well, as you say, you have a task force of 20, yeah. all experts in their own field, mm-hmm. all coming from these different areas, mm-hmm. a lot of talk, that that ability to pull out mm-hmm. what's going to work with what else is going to work and those sorts of things is is a key piece of this. Pulling a structure out of all of that and, and making sure it's it honored everyone's views. That's right. That's views. what I mean. That, yeah. Yeah, that you're not that, – that everyone feels – got all these people talking mm-hmm. that everyone feels that that policy we've come up with – It reflects us. Reflects yeah. us. And not all ideas – um, survive that process, right? So having people understand why, yeah, like here's here's the commonplace, and that was the point of it. Where's 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 the place of agreement that we all know we and agree that we can work on? So from that, we came up with the 55 action steps that formed our our good food for all agenda. But that was organized into eight action areas, and then we um, also recommended that there be a food policy council among the action steps. And, and the other recommendations was a procurement policy, a purchasing uh-huh. policy. It was one. One of many. 
Yeah. So we then uh, got the blessing of the mayor to create a food policy council. We started figuring out the organizational structure for it. And then we had our first meeting, recruited more people, et cetera, and had our first meeting in January of 2011. And And we had a working group structure that included other members other than those who were actually council members or on the council because what we had learned in the listening sessions as we were uh, doing our task force work is there was a lot of interest in this so there were listening sessions on urban agriculture and hundreds of people would show up listening sessions on fair labor dozens of people i mean we had a lot of people showing up so seeing how much interest there was in this issue made us think about what kind of structure could we have where we can incorporate all that feedback, but still have a, a decision-making Still get process. something done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we created a structure where the the board, the lead, you know, the Food Policy Council really became a board, and it was a 40 because it was, you know, diverse representation. We also had um, gender and ethnic diversity represented on the board, but we also wanted them to be decision makers and leaders in their field. So it would be the CEO of the food bank was on, for example, um, and the head of chronic disease and injury prevention. So decision makers. Mm. But then we'd have the working groups operate as subcommittees um, and would work out, you know, we'd get lots of input from everyone on what the policy agenda would be in that issue area. So creating a good food economy was one bucket that the good food purchase that purchasing came in. So we had lots of people working on that in committee and then had a proposal and that came through the leadership board to then agree, you know, have more input and agree on and then we would start moving forward on it. And it was a very iterative, very fluid process. You said at the top of the hour about the world is dynamic and fluid. And indeed it is. And decision making could and should be the best decision making, dynamic, fluid. It, it incorporates all these ideas and synthesizes and as I, them. And as I said, it's, it's it, that it's it's the world actually exists as a set of relationships. Yeah, I think it's not a set of things or a set of it's it's the relationships. And so what you're dealing with is those between commerce and government, between health yeah. and nutrition, between environment and all of these things. Yeah. and 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 that people. Feel heard and are heard. Yeah, exactly. And and so what what Im- the the policy that emerges from this council is what? So we created the Good Food Purchasing Program, and the working group that um, was on and Alexa was heading that working group. So by then by then we had staff and we were staffing the working groups. You know, all of us, the leadership board was representative, so that you know everybody was helping the working groups come along or, you know, do their work and maintain organization and so forth. Everybody's got to remember what was said last time to next time. Everybody's got other stuff, things to do. When are we going to meet? You know, things like that. So we're helping with that kind of thing. And let me just tell people that this is free forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally, and I'm speaking with Paula Daniels, co-founder, chief of What's Next, and chair of the board of the Center for Good Food Purchasing, and what you've been hearing so far uh, is the evolution of, of both her own personal path and uh, these ideas. And uh, you can learn more at goodfoodpurchasingoneword.org. This is Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2019 conversation with Paula Daniels of the Center for Good Food Purchasing. The center uses the power of procurement 
to create a food system that prioritizes the health and well-being of people, animals, and the environment. And you can learn more at Good Food Purchasing, one word, goodfoodpurchasing.org. Yeah. So how do we get from from an LA's idea. policy, <laughs> or yes, as you say, from an idea. Idea to a thing. And the idea was that you had a feeling that that food needed to be dealt with in a, in, in a new way, yeah. right? That um, we had a, a significant amount of purchasing power as consumers, and, and not just as individual consumers, and while that's significant, but also as aggregate consumers, there are large institutions that buy hundreds of millions of dollars worth of food a year. So in the course of our task force discussions, everyone agreed that LA Unified School District was really important in this area. And many organizations had been looking at the health aspect of the the food purchasing of LA Unified School District. What are they serving students from a health standpoint? But in the course of the task force discussions, um, Everyone agreed that the school district also could have a huge influence on the agricultural environment in a way they hadn't really recognized before. They were buying $150 million worth of food a year. That can make a big difference. They were the biggest food service provider in the L.A. region. And that's true in a lot of regions, right? In other words, if you can work with the school districts, you've got a leverage point on food. That's absolutely right. That's true in every region. The school districts are the biggest food service provider. Even in New York, by far, um, school districts buy more than hospitals and others. They're serving students, hundreds of thousands of students. So LA Unified serves 750,000 students a day. And they serve lunch every day, and they serve uh, breakfast in a lot of schools as well. And in the summer, they get involved in dinner programs, so they're serving a lot of food. So they have a lot of influence. And that first uh, angle, sort of, the health angle, um, in other words, I mean, unlike, I'm just saying, uh, where a large corporation might not uh, be as vulnerable to an approach that says, what about the health of the people you're feeding? The school district, we're talking about the city's kids. Yeah. So you've got an entry point there, right? Yeah, exactly. And there had already been a level of accountability um, that the school district had been enjoying (laughs) with their school board and parent groups and other advocacy groups about health. So they were used to interacting um, with that degree of accountability. And we had on our food policy council the food service director for LA Unified School District. So the people who would implement were part of the decision-making process and the design process. We also had on our working group uh, food processors. We had um, other you know, food service companies would show up. We had health organizations, labor organizations. So everybody who had a stake in this, the stakeholders, were part of designing the Good Food Purchasing Program. It was a two-year process, and it went through an awful lot of peer review um, and focus group sessions. We kicked the tires on it pretty heavily. I was planning to have the mayor adopt it. I was going to present it to him for adoption. So I didn't ever want to put anything in front of him that I hadn't thought through thoroughly, that I would figure out what the pitfalls are, what the obstacles are, who might have opposition. And to me, if there's opposition, you'd want to sit down, talk to them, and find out what the reason is to see if there's you know, something that should change about what you're doing. 
opposition often is helpful. It's instructive. Yeah, yeah. So I'd always want, I always sought it out so that, you know, by the time it got to him and to the school district, we would have done our, our diligence, our homework. We would have understood that it could be implemented without it causing them a problem. In startups... This is de-risking, mm, right? There you go. And you yeah. were, I mean, I don't even know if people were talking about that then. We didn't use those terms. But that's what you were doing. That's what we were doing. De-risking exactly right. it politically, de-risking it economically. From a feasibility standpoint, because if we're going to ask school districts to do this, we want to make sure it's something they can do. In um, part of our research, you know, we've been looking at other policies and dealt with a number of ideas, many of which were... Um, had a, a lot of really important ideals in them, but we weren't sure what does that mean once they start trying to implement it. So out of that whole questioning process, that two-year process, came this program that we designed. And it was adopted by the city in um, October of 2012, and then it was adopted by the school board in November of 2012. Then within one year of the school, um, LA Unified School District adopting it, they went from less than 10% local sourcing of produce to an average of 60%, and it redirected $12 million into the local food economy, which is exactly what we had hoped. So very briefly, quickly, mm -hmm. what are the ripple effects of that kind of change? When you go from – when you increase uh, locally sourced from 10% yeah. to 60%, what else are you getting for, as bang for that buck? Yeah, when when you redirect that amount of money into local food economy, it means you're supporting a number of smaller farmers and local farmers. So the money stays in the region, um, and there's a, a, a con an economic concept called the economic multiplier effect, which is that um, money that is spent here for a local business actually derives almost twice the benefit. Um, because of indirect and induced effects of having that dollar here. Yeah, let me words, just suggest to people, if you uh, purchase from a local merchant or you purchase from Walmart, right. the, you know, there's a margin, and that margin is going to go to Arkansas mm -hmm. if you purchase from Walmart, or it's going to stay here. in and mean that someone uses it to buy gas and someone uses mm -hmm. it to buy food and someone mm -hmm. uses it to pay rent, mm -hmm. and and it's that keeping it at home it just has that multiplier. It has much better benefits, and it can at least double um, the value of that dollar when it's spent here. So that $12 million redirected in the local food economy probably end up resulting in a, a much greater benefit, up to maybe $20 million yeah. for L.A. But it also created 150 new jobs. So that's an example of it. And then they also started sourcing more sustainably produced and local wheat. So it's, there's a huge benefit to it that starts rippling throughout. Um, and and then, that, was, that was how many years ago that that policy was adopted by LAUSD? Seven. Seven. Yeah, okay. And so the, now it's just, it's just the way things are done? So now, yeah, so now they're they're enrolled in our program, and what they do is they give us their food purchasing dollars, and we analyze it and let them know how they're doing. So they get a rating from our system. That's part of what they sign up for. So a, a way to think of it is like if, if you're familiar with LEED certification for buildings that has the – Okay, L-E-E-D. Uh, L-E-E-D means leadership in energy and environmental design. So it has the baseline, and it has a, a silver, gold, platinum. So we give a – 
points and a star rating for the five value categories that we rate in. And, and we those have, five, again, to remind people. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's local economies, environmental sustainability, fair labor, animal welfare, and nutritional health. And we have a baseline of 15% purchasing in each category. We describe what qualifies as baseline. We describe how you can get more points. It's very aspirational. And what, and, and, and what value do points have? Uh, so the points add up to a star rating. And? And they can get a star rating depending on how the points go. So an example would be in the environmental sustain. Well, let's use local. That's probably easier. Um, in the local um, category, baseline would be buying within state. You could get more points if you buy within a 250-mile radius, more points if you buy from a smaller farmer. So there's increasing um points for and what, 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 what I'm things. saying is is besides getting the points yeah. do you derive an extra value from those points do they get you something else a discount on something or oh, no. recognition it, or is it yeah the po- the points the points let you know how you're doing ah so they give you a star rating so we now we've spread from LA you mentioned we have the yeah. center so we're around the country so Boulder Colorado um their school district got a 5 star rating Oakland got a uh, 4 star rating one year so they know that they're doing well they can have assurance of their progress so okay. what's valuable about this is it's a feedback tool right so the school districts are interested in doing well and and everyone is now understanding how important it is for pur- purchasing dollars to to really reflect the values and agree, they agree to all that, and then they want to know how they're doing and how they can do better. So the feedback tool is what is valuable. So you give them a set of guidelines, mm-hmm. these, these, these five areas. Mm-hmm. Then you give them uh, a lot of, uh, I would imagine, tutoring and training and so on about how to, how to adapt, how to shift what they've been doing to, these new, to, to meet these new things. And then you give them metrics of how to measure how mm-hmm. well they're doing, and then... Uh, things about how to improve once you know your measurement. So a lot of people talk about when you set goals, you want them to be measurable, you want Mm -hmm. timelines, you want them to be real. Mm -hmm. And this seems, it seems like you've done that, um, you know, in a big way. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it is. They do an annual assessment. So they have an annual assessment that tells them how they're doing. We help them set the goals, as you said. So it's very... um, it's very clear what the pathway is, and that's been helpful. That's what a number of the school districts like a lot, which is why they're all signed. We have 40 institutions enrolled now. Well, what I was going to say is let's talk about that moment then. Mm-hmm. So you've, you, you, it's been a, a – a, uh, a f- well, I mean, if you're changing a food system, that's like turning an aircraft carrier, right? So it seems like, oh, that would take a – but it, it has taken time. You've mm-hmm. taken a couple of years. You've had lots of meetings. You've had lots of talk and so on. Once you've got LA up and it seems to be working, mm-hmm. it's adopted and working, how quickly do you uh, think, well, we can go bigger than this? It happened fairly quickly because at the time I was um, – I moved from being a public works commissioner to being uh, the mayor's senior advisor on food policy. And that happened in 2011. In 2012, he became president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And I, I – recommended and he agreed to create a food policy task force at the, the US, at the US Conference of Mayors. Yeah. Ah. So we did do that. We created a food policy task force at the US Conference of Mayors. And um, so I participated in a number of meetings with my um, with other mayors and 
other um, my counterparts in other cities that were assigned to work on food. So we were sharing best practices. So every time any one of us did something, we'd share it with the other. That was part of it. There were other things we did as well. We we advocated um, as mayors on the farm bill for a more holistic farm bill policy. We, for the first time, sent a letter um, to all the, um, you know, the key congressional and Senate representatives that went beyond talking about food stamps or SNAP, um, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, and talked about our responsibility to our rural agricultural economy, basically talking about agroecological principles. So we, I mean, we did all that. We've done shows over the years uh, here on farm policy and that most people, I think, don't realize the extent of what farm policy actually, yeah. the influence it has. And as you say, um, to, to go beyond... Uh, to, to actually take new factors into account uh, besides, let's say, just food stamps. Yeah. Um, and that food policy or farm policy had for years been something that just a few ag representatives uh, had in their back pocket and they did it so that the subsidies worked for their farmers mm -hmm. and so on. And this notion of using the farm bill to actually have these other values in mind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Has been a growing one, but exactly. but now you've got the count the council of mayors. Well, we started. At, we we actually uh, passed a resolution in 2012 and uh, 2013, and um, and submitted letters. Um, met with uh, the Senate Ag Committee, did all of that work with the advocating for that more holistic uh, farm bill policy and showing how we cared about that issue. We cared about the rural issues. We cared about our rural community. We saw our role in helping the rural, the surrounding regions, the rural agricultural economy thrive, and that we wanted to manage that responsibly and needed the support of the federal government and the farm bill. So we were doing things like that. And we also... Um, in and you've, you've said, I'm, I'm cutting in, but you've said okay. that, that this this uh, notion, uh, I, I have often talked also on the show about the urban rural divide mm -hmm. and and how it's it's uh, really wreaking havoc mm -hmm. on our culture and democracy and so yeah. on and that's something that i mean you now have mayors who are mostly urban that's what that's you know that's mm -hmm. who gets the big the big attention in in mm -hmm. Now saying, wait, we care about you and finding ways to work together mm -hmm. with rural. That was important because um, in in advancing the idea of the food policy back in 2009 and all the years since, part of the work, um, the good work, you know, I, I say it as distinguished from hard work, part of the work was um, changing the narrative around our role around food. So, so helping people, like shifting the frame, um, talking with folks about how and as city leaders, our responsibility is broader than making sure people get food. It's about how the food is produced. It's about using all the influence we have as cities to work with, to better, to like help our rural communities thrive in the way that we know our values are expressed, but have it be a, a dialogue, really. Not a monologue, but right. a dialogue. Right. So that was... Uh, Shifting that perspective and and you know having um, everyone embrace that concept was part of the conversations in the beginning, but that's where it is now. So so now you have you know the C40, the 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 international group of the top forty cities in the world is how it started. 
um, and Eric Mayor Garcetti is president of the C40, but oh. they have a food and cities policy platform recognizing the role that cities have in um, in the food system. It was a new conversation in 2009. Yeah. But um, it's a it's been increasing in that time, which is terrific. Let me let, I mean, I think we've got a sense. So now, oh, what I will ask you very briefly, and then I want to get sort of a couple of lessons learned piece. What's the status right now? How many cities? How many students? How much money? Yeah, so we're in um, in f- over forty institutions in eighteen cities around the country. All the so institutions the means the school district, park and recs, um, jails, some universities, that okay. sort of thing. So more than more than school just districts. School when districts. I say institutions, yeah. um, so we're in the top three cities: um, L.A., Chicago, New York. We're partnered with the Urban School Food Alliance, which is the top 11 cities in the country. Um, and I just know, I mean, I have some numbers on that one just so people can get a sense of uh, this Urban School Food Alliance represents 4,500 schools, 2.5 million students, um, $552 million in food service each year. Mm. Well, we definitely have close to a billion dollars enrolled in our program right now uh, that we're analyzing. And we have a team of analysts that sift through all the food purchasing dollars and reflect back to the institutions. And we're also looking at it in in an aggregate. Now, I assume there's some sort of an S-curve here that you don't have to uh, get every single dollar to uh, come under your program for the influence to sort of hit a tipping point and begin to grow. That's one of the, the the logics, I would think, of using government procurement and so on, is that you can actually achieve m- more than what you do explicitly because of the influence on the market? Yeah. Um, well, so we, yes, when you have the biggest institutions in a region enrolled in this program and creating this market de- demand, it has an influence on the market for sure. And it has a ripple effect. And we actually think that, you know, for those places that want to shift their purchasing, Hawaii, for example, has a goal of uh, getting to 30% local production by 2030. Um, rather than try to assess all the f- food purchasing dollars in the whole state, which would, they've been trying to do for a while, they could look at what the large institutions are purchasing and and use a program like ours to assess what the large institutions are purchasing because that will serve as a strong indicator of where your local food purchasing dollars are. Sure, sure. But it also then helps if they're all doing the same thing, if they're all coordinated along those lines – it'll help spur the creation of the value chain infrastructure needed to support it. So the distributional infrastructure, the supply side, it'll help spur demand. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've got about four minutes. Okay. Okay. So one thing I'm just going to mention and set aside is uh, I said you were an Ashoka Fellow. That's A-S-H-O-K-A. Right. It's a a benevolent Indian emperor from (laughs) centuries ago is what it's named after. But Ashoka uh, is something I've been following for, God, since uh, pretty much when it started. A fellow named Bill Drayton who – I, I was thinking about him, and one of the things was I filled in for Rachel Maddow on our old Air America show mm. on Christmas Eve one mm. year, and I booked Bill as one of my guests wow. because I felt Christmas, good news, yeah. Ashoka. But people look up Ashoka. Ashoka and Bill are, if not the originators, certainly the ones that spread the notion of social entrepreneurship, which is taking entrepreneurship, which we usually associate with solving business problems, with entrepreneurship that solves 
social problems mm -hmm. and has social impact. And you are one of the fellows. We don't have time to talk about it at length, but check it out. It's a it's a it's a very wonderful model and so on. Um, what would be you know you really I really appreciate the way you took it step by step because my question when I hear what you've achieved is how did she pull that off? You know, how do you do that? And so you've, you've mapped that out. What would be kind of, if you had, you know, two minutes, the biggest lessons learned? From this work? Yeah. Well, one is if that... people want to make social change. One is that um, it always takes a village. <laughs> uh, these big shifts happen only when everyone's on board with it. But the other is, I think, to have a clear sense of what you want to achieve and to maintain that, keep that in mind. I guess the best analogy I'll use is I I think of the voyage of the Hokulea, which was um, in 1976. It was the, um, and I know Thompson, who's two years older than me, um, went to the same high school, wanted to embark on a journey to prove that Hawaiians knew how to use traditional voyaging techniques and they didn't drift into Hawaii. They deliberately found it. And um, in his training for uh, using celestial voyaging techniques to get to Tahiti, the person who taught him how to do this, Malau Pilag, the traditional navigator, uh, taught him how to always keep Tahiti in mind as he started on his vision and his voyage. So you know generally which way you're going to go, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen along the way. You don't know the what winds, the, the currents, <laughs> exactly what the conditions will be like, what the crew will do, would the sun be up or not be up. You have your basic skills that you're going to use to help guide you. You know you want to get to Tahiti. You have a general sense of the path, but you've got to be able to work with what the conditions give you. That, to me, I think is the most important thing in helping to make change. Like knowing, some would say keep your eyes on the prize, but it's not a, always a straight path. Mm -hmm. And the winds will blow. The clouds will come. You just have to work with the skills you have, the people you have, the crew you have, and just keep going in that direction. Yeah. And the other thing it seems that you've done uh, uh, that I hear throughout the way you tell this is the pulling all the stakeholders in and transparency and yeah. dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. I think the very fluid decision-making process we had was really helpful in that particular initiative. But that was the same for um, the million uh, trees. The trees and for green streets, it was all all very stakeholder driven. Um, I think those are important processes, but also being willing to take the heat of leadership <laughs> and and the, sometimes the friction, but just keep moving forward. Somebody has to command the ship. So you need a leader. You need or leaders. You need leadership, but that leadership has to be somewhat comfortable with the fluidity. Somebody has to make the calls, um, but and somebody has to, yeah, work with conditions and the crew. Okay. <laughs> um, the thing we didn't get into, and I, I is the since you're the, I'm just going to say since you're the uh, the what's next person would have been what's next, but uh, part two. If, yeah. If we <laughs> if we do this again, we'll do we'll deal with what's next. Okay. So the website is goodfoodpurchasing.org. One word: goodfoodpurchasing. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles, and to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or a world that just might work.com. That's Terrence McNally, T E W R E N C E M C N A W L Y dot net, or one long word, a world that just might work dot com. They're the same website. If you want to receive my weekly email announcements telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually eight to ten articles to kind of flesh out the context and the conversation, sign up at my site or email me at T E McNally at Mac 
feedforum.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Feedforum podcast on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes and many other podcast sites. You can find years of podcasts at my site or at those others. Listen anytime, anywhere. Uh, Michael Lewis, Jeremy Scahill, Naomi Klein, Robert Reich, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to G. Lee and Mark Maxwell and Teddy Robinson and Matt Perez in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all, you, my listeners, please share this podcast widely. Thank you, Paula Daniels. Keep up the good work. Thank you. 